And so now, Father, as we turn our attention to your word, Spirit of God, you are the hand that penned the words on these pages. Would you be our guide and our interpreter this morning? We love you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Mark chapter 7. We're going to be in verses 31 through 37 this morning. When you get to Mark chapter 7, verse 31, give me a oh yeah. If you need a minute, say hold up, brother. All right. Mark chapter 7, verse 31 reads, hear the word of the Lord. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As a child, I was deathly afraid of public speaking, which is ironic because I do it every week now. But one of the reasons that I was deathly afraid of public speaking is that from the time I started talking until about third grade, I had a very severe lisp. It created a deep insecurity in me that I could not talk without my tongue coming out of my mouth. To this day, I spit when I talk, and I hate that, but I get so excited, and I talk a little bit too fast, and so I spit when I talk. But I remember those days when I had to start going to a speech pathologist. And in those days, I began to think, man, this is, I don't know why I'm doing this. But she gave us a Hershey kiss at the end of every session, and I was here for candy. Um, (laughs) Consequently, side note, one of my earliest memories of being convicted over my sin was in third grade, I was only supposed to take one Hershey kiss out of the jar, and one week I took two, and I was racked with anguish and guilt. <laughs> so I returned, and I gave it back with tears in my eyes, and she's like, well, thanks for being honest, but you could have had two. But anyway, I, I, I remember the anxiety I would get in having to speak and being made fun of because I had a lazy tongue or I had a fat tongue, and I worked with this speech pass. Shouts out. To the speech pathologists among us, I am living proof that what you do works. Um, But I remember being a child and working through that and then getting to this text of scripture and being like, oh my goodness, this is me. Perhaps I can hear, and yes, I can hear, praise God for that, but one who is slow of speech, one whose uh, tongue seems to be tied, one who cannot control and, and really say what you want to say. I remember being a child And thinking about this text in a particular way, and as an adult, I've preached probably over 700 to 1,000 sermons, given well over that many, if not more, talks. I am employed, and my vocation requires speaking. And I think about what all went into the healing process of that, and I approach this text today, and there's one thing that sticks out to me about this man's condition that just I just can't get numb to. 
And that is, things are not as they should be. Men, should, men and women should not be deaf. Men and women should not have trouble speaking. Children should not die. We should not die for that fact. For those who are going through a chronic illness, things are not as they should be. When we watch the hatred and the vitriolic fomented against other image bearers of God, things are not as they should be. It's real easy to get sensitized to brokenness, friends, but I just want to encourage us to have a heart sensitivity that God's design did not originally include this. There's physical brokenness, there's spiritual darkness, and there's desperation. Desperation. I feel desperate when I engage one of my guilty pleasures slash pastime slash sin habits that I need to quit, which is doom scrolling on Twitter before bed. I hop on Twitter and I just scroll and I'm reading all the brokenness in the world and people who are fighting and nations that are at war. And I can't help to think to myself, sometimes, Jason, cut it off. It's not good for your soul. These things are not normal. For me, at the very least, I need to be careful not to normalize brokenness, the brokenness of deep isolation and loneliness, the brokenness of anxiety and depression. I look at this man in the text, and I know that his experience and much of what we live is not as things should be. I need to first acknowledge that. Brokenness may be ubiquitous, but it is not normal. And one of the reasons we need to see brokenness and feel it and acknowledge it is because we need to understand why Jesus' person and his work were such a phenomenon in this day and this time. When we get to Mark 7, Jesus seems to go out of his way to have an encounter with this man. If you were to read the text, you would see that he goes from the region of Tyre through Sidon by the Sea of Galilee and into the Decapolis, which is the city of Tin. Where he's going is a journey that should have only been about 20 kilometers. And yet he walks 120 kilometers to get there. It has confounded biblical scholars why Jesus literally goes north and goes east to go south. He went all the way around into Gentile territory to have an encounter with this man. Why? Furthermore, when we get into the text, we see that Jesus does something unusual. They bring him to Jesus, and then Jesus takes him aside privately. He sticks his fingers in his ears, and he spits, and then touches the man's tongue. Now, I love y'all, but I ain't spitting on none of y'all. I love y'all. I might... I might lick my finger and wipe the crust off of my son's face before he gets out of my car for school. That's about as far as my saliva goes to touching anyone else. <laughs> There's something going on here, though. This is unusual. We know in other places Jesus might spit in the dirt and make a paste to rub it on a blind man's eyes to allow him to see. But here, Jesus spits and touches the man's tongue. What's happening here? I think if we look closely, second point this morning, what we see is we, speak, we see special means 
for special needs. Special means for special needs. If he's deaf, he can't hear what Jesus has to say. Perhaps he's gotten good at reading lips, but if he's deaf, he can't hear. Perhaps over the years, he's gotten really good at reading lips, but there's something else happening here. Jesus understands something about him and those around. So he does something. He pulls him to the side privately. Now, another way to think about this is he withdraws with this man. Now, a couple of different places we see Jesus withdrawing. He withdraws by himself to spend time with the Father. He withdraws with his disciples to get back and away from the crowd. And here, Jesus is withdrawing to the side in a bit of a different way. Friends, I think what Jesus is doing here is I think Jesus is meeting this man where he is in his condition, and I think Jesus is using sign language to communicate to this man what he's about to do. I think the fingers in Jesus' ears, and I think what he's motioning with with his hands, and then the touch to the man is all indicative of sign language to explain what he's going to do. So imagine this. Perhaps you can put yourself in the shoes of this man. He's deaf. He can't hear. And if it's you and someone spits and then tries to touch you, or perhaps you're deaf and you spent your entire life being blindsided by people who've hit you, being blindsided by things surprising you, The fact that Jesus would slow down and explain with his hands what's going on indicates that Jesus sees this man, knows where he is, and meets him there. Furthermore, there's special means here that beg a question. Couldn't Jesus just utter a single word and cure this man? Right? We we see him do it throughout the text. We see him do it in several different places. Talitha Kumi, daughter Rise. We see him uh, speak to a woman who's touched the hem of his garment in the previous passage and say to her, daughter, go away. Your faith has made you well. And he's spoken to the son of a centurion saying, go, your son is all right. He arrives to see his son waking up. We, We see Jesus sending a word, but here he doesn't do that. If it's a question about power, Does Jesus have the power to heal that way? The answer is yes, absolutely. Jesus holds all power in his heavenly hands. But if it's a question of will or desire, then no, Jesus can't heal those other ways here. Because he would circumvent what he wants those around him to see and understand. We're going to get to the answer to that in a moment, but we need to look at two things Jesus does here. Look in verse 34. Jesus looks up to heaven. That's the first thing that he does. He looks up to heaven, to the source of his power, to the affirmation of a father whom he never acts independently of because Jesus and the father are one. It's part of the Trinitarian expression of Christ Jesus. It's the, um, um, the perichoresis of the Trinity, this mutual round dancing, mutual giving of the father, son, and spirit where Jesus is not acting on his own prerogative. He's acting here as combined in a unity with the father. So he looks to heaven as if to bring this loved one, this cherished one before God, begging God to ask. And then the next thing he does is so simple, he sighs. 
Have you ever sighed? Some of us might use a sigh to gain the attention of a spouse because we want them to ask, what are you sighing about? We might use a sigh ironically when we hear someone complaining about something that's really not that bad, so we might say, The way love was depicted previous to 1990 was often a sigh in regards to the ways that another individual made you feel. But I wonder if you've ever sighed because things are just really hard. Sometimes a sigh is a cleansing breath after you've held it for so long. Sometimes a sigh connotes that you can't hold it any longer. Sometimes a sigh connotes I don't know what else to do. In the Greek, this sigh is full, some might say pregnant with emotion. As Jesus looks to heaven, as if to say, things are not the way they should be. He feels this man's pain. He meets him in that place. And I I just have to stop and, and acknowledge Jesus is sent from God. He is God. And a sigh seems like such a pedestrian thing for a divine power like Jesus. But here he's commiserating with him. I think there's something really important for us here. Jesus sees him as a person and not a problem. I'm going to say that again. Jesus sees him as a person and not a problem. A person. Everyone else is shuttling around him, ushering him out of the way, getting him out of the way. He's in the way. Get out of the way. And Jesus is like, no, he's not a problem. He's a person. He sees this man with very special needs that provides and requires very special care. He doesn't simply regard him as someone who gets in the way of my daily tasks, but rather this is a person. It's a human being. I've been thinking about the families with special needs in our church all week. Some of you who are raising and have raised children with special needs, some who are still in your home, some of you live the reality of maybe sometimes feeling more like a problem than a person. I've been thinking all this week about how those among us who have special needs are a gift not a problem, a gift, and not a cause for charity, a gift because they're people and because perhaps they show us something deeper. Jesus frequently demonstrates the sacredness of personhood for those who have been dehumanized and dismissed. One of the things that people with special needs will tell you is they will remind you, one, yes, things are not as they should be, but they also show you ways in which often, ways in which the kingdom is breaking in through them. If you were to meet my niece in the first 30 seconds, she's going to give you a hug. 
She don't know you. But she recognizes something in you that's worthy of love. A friend of mine from high school has a son who has autism. And one of his things is he loves people with color in their hair. So they go to a restaurant and the young lady working the cash register, her hair is purple. And he makes a beeline for her and he says, I think you look beautiful with your hair that way. And this young lady just all of a sudden breaks down crying. Now, a child with autism can't often tell social and emotional cues. So he's confused. His mom walks over. She's crying too. So he's trying to figure out what's happening. And his mom has to explain to him that she was having a really, really bad day. And you encouraged her and it touched her heart and it moved her and it made her cry. Friends, that is part of the kingdom breaking in when joy and light erupts in dark places. This passage begins, and it's so subtle, I wonder if you missed it. This passage begins with an unidentified they. I've been racking my brain all week. Who is they? In verse 32, and they brought him to Jesus. And they brought him to Jesus. And they begged Jesus to lay his hands on, on, on them. Now, 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 we've got to be honest that Mark is moving at such a rapid and man, quick pace. And he's moving at such a clip that certain details get left out. But I have been fascinated by this unspecified they all week. Who is they that brought this man with special needs to Jesus? And then I began to think about all the parents in here and relatives and caregivers of those with special needs who are frequently they. Unspecified, unseen, unappreciated, unnoticed. I, th I think about parents who are working through life and I can't help but to think how necessary it was for they to bring this man to Jesus in a similar way that it might be necessary for you as they to bring your loved one to Jesus. I think of how important it is for so many families that are embodying Jesus and bringing these precious souls before him in a often thankless job that isn't glamorous. You're likely getting blessed out or cussed out or hit all the time. People look at you like you're crazy in public, wondering why you can't just get your child to act right. And I need you to know to keep holding on. Because this man is not healed if there is no they. What you are is you are among those who get to do the work of Jesus by bringing those close to him. But I know that's tiring and it's exhausting and you might be discouraged and perhaps you've wondered if your life is the way that it is and you've wondered, God, why am I here in this place? I never thought I'd be. Or perhaps you yourself or looking at a lifetime of care for a child or for a loved one with no end in sight. Here's what I want to encourage you in this morning. Wherever you are and whatever you're feeling, Jesus sighs with you. He feels it and he sighs 
And he's using you as they to be a picture of Jesus to a world that often moves too slow or too fast to slow down to be with Jesus. Hopping back into the text, when I see this man and Jesus' ministry to him, what I notice is that Jesus sees this man, receives him, and he cares about his body and his soul. Now, now here's a place, if I were to use two false dichotomies, in the mid-20th century, you had a battle between two opposing forces. You had the social gospel on one side, and then you had evangelicalism on the other side. The social gospel essentially believed that the care for the body would translate into spiritual formation with or without the concrete preaching of the gospel. That's a very loose way to sum that up. Evangelicalism, on the other hand, had an almost exclusive preoccupation with the human soul, where they essentially would say that your present life and your current plight didn't really matter that much, but as long as your soul was saved and you were going to heaven, you had a little fire insurance, you were good. Both of these are ditches that we can tend to fall into if we only read the Bible in the ways in which we've been taught. So if we only read an exclusively spiritual meaning on the text, we will find that there is great value for the soul and not that much for the body. But if we read the text without the supernatural emphasis with a focus more on the body, what we get is a life that's preoccupied with the physical aspects of life with little regard to the human soul. Both of those are wrong. These two things are not mutually exclusive. It is not an either or, it is a both and. Jesus cares deeply about this man's body. I mean, after all, he receives him. He sticks his fingers in his ears and puts his wet finger on this man's tongue to heal him. He cares about this man's body. He also cares about this man's soul. And all throughout the Gospels, Jesus is ministering to both the body and the soul. But a human soul is a difficult thing to reach. A human soul is difficult to get to. You, you might be able to spark a soul. Uh, it cannot be, uh, you might be able to spark a soul by a beautiful sight. But a human soul does not come alive by man-made things. It is not sparked into life by eloquence. It might be stirred or aroused by the beauty of creation, but it does not live. Unless something from God acts upon it. And sure, our souls can be stirred. Have you ever been to Glacier Point and looked out at the beauty of creation and been blown away at your smallness? Perhaps you've been to Seattle and on a clear day, you could see Mount Rainier poking its head up in the distance with its snow-capped peak and feeling like and realizing, wow, this is amazing. Or perhaps you've gone way down yonder on a Chattahoochee and tell me that you don't know how much that muddy water meant to you. Sure, creation sparks something in us. Beauty sparks something in us. But a human soul can't live off of sparks. A human soul can't live off of good feels. 
A human soul cannot survive on good vibes. A human soul will never come alive by exclusively natural means. It can only come alive by supernatural means. Many of my friends who are walking away from church are doing so for a number of different reasons. Part of which is hypocrisy that they view, to which I would retort that everyone's a hypocrite. It's just a matter to what degree. Some would point to the incongruencies between what our Jesus says is right and how his people act. That's a legitimate critique. But I also believe that there is a world whose souls are hungry and they're desperately trying every method to feed them, to make their souls joyful and glad, but wanderlust only lasts for so long. Becoming a millionaire by 40 might be good, but Biggie Small said it best, more money, more problems. I think when I look around the world, I see a soul sickness. I think there are many of my friends and maybe some of you here this morning who are looking to experience God in a profound way that sticks to you. Like cornbread and collard greens. To have an encounter with Jesus that leaves you saying, yeah, this is the good stuff. My soul is And what Jesus is doing here is he's doing something deeper to get us and this man to that point. It comes down to two primary things, hear and believe, hear and believe. Now, I want you to notice something. Verse 35, his ears are opened, his tongue is released, he speaks plainly. Now, I remember graduating at the end of my speech pathology journey, and I had to give and recite a little poem there in front of my little cohort. There's about six of us. We were all deathly afraid of speaking in front of one another. But I said, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to go out with a bang. And I said that speech, and I only lisped twice in about 20 verses. And I thought to myself, I am the greatest speaker that's ever walked the face of the earth. It was like this complete transformation. I instantly had confidence. I was like, oh my goodness, I can talk. I can talk. It's like Pinocchio. He can talk. There's something so beautiful. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. The shocking part of all of this for everyone who's watching is for the first time, for some, they're actually seeing how things should be. They're watching Jesus do something here that should be done. This man should be able to hear. He should be able to speak plainly. He should be free. And then... Jesus says, hey, all y'all that is here, y'all don't tell nobody about this. I need y'all to go, keep your mouth shut, don't say nothing. Why? This divine messianic secret Jesus is imploring them to keep because he knows that when people start seeing signs, people are going to start following him for the signs rather than the deeper meaning of why he's come. So think about this. Jesus speaks in parables to hide and conceal the truth to those who think they already know it, but to reveal the truth to those who are seeking. If people are coming to Jesus just for the signs, they're missing Jesus because he's the one the signs point to. 
So if all of these things are pointing to Jesus, then he's doing something deeper here. My father-in-law, Greg Hall, said this yesterday. He said, Jason, think about all the times when Jesus is saying, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. There's something here about hearing. But, it, but it's not just hearing in the terms of being auditorily capable to receive and interpret a signal and then your brain to make sense. There's a deeper hearing. Consider Isaiah 6. Isaiah has this encounter with God. He sees God in the storm room. It's where we get that trisagion, that great trisagion passage, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then Isaiah says, here am I, Lord, send me. And God's like, okay, here's your mission. This is what he says. He says, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Here's what he's saying. I want you to go to a bunch of people who think they got it right. I want you to take this message to Israel who is acting wickedly. And sure, they hear you, but they're not hearing you. And, and God, in this really ironic twist, says that if they perceive with their hearts, they will turn and be healed. That's the hope in the passage. It's the hope that people won't just hear what they want to hear or see what they want to see. But there's a deeper meaning. There's a deeper hidden agenda from God that there are supernatural means by which we see and hear. Consider Isaiah, or excuse me, Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Because God's people are frequently in the business of being unable to realize they need divine mechanisms to discern divine directives, God says, taste and see the Lord is good. Now, is, is, is the psalmist talking about tasting good food and good drink and seeing the goodness of God in the land? Yes. But he's also talking about something deeper. There's a double entendre here. Taste and see. The deeper reality, friends, is something that Stevie Wonder, Helen Keller, and Ray Charles could see. The deeper reality here is that you don't need physical tongues and physical eyes. You need spiritual tongues and spiritual eyes to taste and see. As Paul says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We need to hear a supernatural word of God. Now, here's what that means. Jesus cares about our bodies and our souls. The message here is that this man who was deaf can now hear. But there was a supernatural means that acted upon him in order for him to hear. And we will search for food for our souls until a supernatural voice in the Holy Spirit comes to us, opens us up to receive the word of the Lord. In order to see the right way. Did y'all ever remember those uh, puzzles that used to come in newspapers? Did y'all remember newspapers? Some of y'all don't remember newspapers. That's okay. Um, <laughs> My kids don't know what newspapers are. If they were to see a newspaper, they would be like, um, Dad, what is this? Are, are you cleaning up poop again? Because that happens in my house all the time. Um, but do y'all remember those little puzzles in newspapers where you kind of had to cross your eyes to reveal this hidden image in like this puzzle? Do y'all remember that? I'm by myself. Okay. Uh, true sight, true spiritual sight looks beyond what's physically present and is able to discern what's underneath it. That supernatural voice, that supernatural nourishment, and that supernatural hearing of Christ is what causes us to believe. Because when we encounter the supernatural, the reality is we cannot help but to talk about it. Fourth and finally, and I'm done. I'm in my seat. 
The last thing this text shows us is that Jesus is the breaker of chains and curses. Now, in the Greek, the phrase that Mark uses for his tongue being loosed is that the chains on his tongue were released. How beautiful is that? The chains on his tongue were released. So Jesus breaks this chain. But also think about how Jesus is reversing the curse of Genesis 3. That everything that was broken in Genesis 3, Jesus is coming to undo. Jesus reverses the curse where sin had bound man. Jesus breaks him free. Where deafness had bound this man, Jesus breaks him free. Where the inability to speak had bound this man, Jesus sets him free. And whenever Jesus touched, the curse was reversed. And when you think about what he does on the cross, what Jesus does on the cross is in order to reverse the curse, he has to first become one. That's a bar. And in becoming the curse for you and I, he assumes our spiritual plight, our spiritual brokenness, our spiritual ineptitude, and confers upon us by faith, wholeness and blessing. What does... A man born deaf, unable to speak, tell us both about ourselves and our current condition, but also about Jesus. What it tells us is two things. One, Jesus is able, but Jesus sighs in our brokenness so that we might rejoice in his wholeness. Let's pray. Father, as we hear from your word and respond to it accordingly, would you speak to us in a supernatural way concerning what it is you would have for us in response to the word that you've spoken over us this morning? So, Father, would these things be so? Would you know and make known to your children they are seen, that they are loved, that you sigh with us in our brokenness, in our exasperation, in our care for others, but you also show us ways that your kingdom is breaking in. Jesus, break into our lives as the supernatural force that turns us away from physical pleasure exclusively and into soul-nourishing means. Lord, we love you. It's your name we pray. Amen.